Good, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, one year ago in late December, Donald Trump established the Space Force by signing that year's National Defense Authorization Act. As we approach the first year of the Space Force's creation, it's time to examine whether or not the Space Force has the tools it needs to be successful or if it is creation is unfortunately premature. In a new Cato Institute policy analysis, Dr. Robert Farley of the University of Kentucky makes the argument that the Space Force lacks the organizational characteristics and strategic culture necessary to be a successful organization from day one or year one. Joining us today is the author of that report, Dr. Robert Farley, um, who is, Robert Farley is a senior lecturer at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky. We also have two other space policy experts with us today to discuss Robert's policy analysis and to offer their comments. Caitlin Johnson, the Deputy Director and Fellow at the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies, or CSIS, and Brian Whedon, the Director of Program Planning at Secure World Foundation. Um, we're going to start with prepared remarks from each of the speakers before moving into question and answer. If you can submit a question uh, via the event website, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and if you submit using social media, please use the hashtag CatoFP, that's capital C, lowercase A-T-O, capital F-P. I will be the moderator for today's event, and I will be curating those questions and then asking them to our participants once we get into the Q&A part in the second half of this event. So without further ado, I will turn it over to the author of the policy analysis, uh, Dr. Robert Farley. Right. Well, first, um, I want to thank everybody for uh, being here, and that's all the people in the audience, but also all the people on the panel. And Eric, I want to thank you. I want to thank everybody at Cato. Um, it's a delight to uh, have the opportunity to be here uh, this afternoon to talk about uh, the Space Force. Now, um, I recently spent a, a year at the Army War College, which means, uh, among other things, that I am only capable of talking and thinking in terms of PowerPoint presentations. And so I have, assuming uh, I can get it to come up, I have a PowerPoint presentation uh, to uh, talk about the Space Force today. Um, give me just a second. All right. Um, and so uh, really this, this PowerPoint is going to sort of characterize uh, uh, my remarks and you know, sort of summarize my remarks, and I'm happy to share it um, uh, with folks at the end um, and really to talk about any aspects of it. Um, so I approached this question of uh, what the Space Force does and what the Space Force is supposed to do um, in terms of thinking about, um, not about space in particular, but about the question of why we need new military organizations um, and what new military organizations are supposed to do. Right? So creating a new military organization is essentially a bureaucratic reform. Um, it is a, a different way of structuring our uniforms and our paperwork and our bureaucracy um, so that we approach military force, the use of military force in a different way. Um, and we should think about Space Force uh, in those terms as a bureaucratic uh, reform rather than as opening a new avenue in the, the history of human warfare. Um, a little bit about the, the sort of the history behind uh, how we think about space from military terms. Um, Space was militarized for a good long time before the appearance of space force, right? It depends on how you define um, the militarization of space. You could start in World War II um, with the use of ballistic missiles. Um, probably a, a better place to start is in the 1950s with uh, the first use of 
satellites, um, satellites that uh, enable communications, that enable reconnaissance, um, that enable people to be connected with one another, and that eventually may, uh, may uh, enable people to actually fight in space. Um, effectively now, um, the entirety of the modern American military, um, the entirety of modern American military operations requires uh, unfettered access to space and perhaps even command of space. Right? So space, space has, has in any useful term already been militarized. Um, I would also say that uh, space increasingly is the backbone of the civilian economy. Um, it offers connectivity that enables instant communication, as we've certainly all discovered over, over the past few months, um, that uh, enables productivity, that enables supply chain diversification, enables people to talk with one another and send gigantic bundles of information um, back and forth to one another around the world. And that's really the core of, sort of the modern global economy, even now, um, in the case of uh, certain trade wars. Um, and in fact, from an academic point of view, um, it's part of what Richard Baldwin might call um, the second great unbundling, uh, which is the way that information technology um, has transformed how industry functions around the world. And then a little bit about um, uh, previous structures of space in the United States in particular. Um, so the United States has had uh, several different organizations. The Department of Defense has had several different organizations um, that have been committed to the management of space affairs. There was Space Command, um, which was uh, way back when and was uh, dismantled for various reasons in the early 2000s. We have more recently had Space Command again. Um, we have Air Force Space Command. Uh, we have the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. We have the Naval Network Warfare Command. These are only the most recent uh, institutions, uh, organizations, which have handled space. If you go back further in U.S. military history, find a lot of different uh, uh, sort of alphabet soup uh, acronyms uh, for things that do space. So it's not as if the United States Space Force, the USSF, um, is bringing this into space or is uh, the first time that the military has encountered space, right? We have a, the United States has a long history of space, as do uh, a number of other countries around the world. So what does Space Force constitute um, at the moment, or what, what at least do we envision it constituting within uh, the next couple of years? Because, of course, the pandemic has had an impact um, on uh, everything, including the stand-up of new military services. Well, the Space Force is an uh, independent service in the United States military, um, and this places it alongside um, such services as the United States Army, the Navy, the Air Force, um, the Marine Corps, and it actually shares a little bit of structural similarity to the Marine Corps, as we'll get to in a second. Um, it is part of the Department of the Air Force. Right? So unlike the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force, each of which have their own departments and their uh, own departmental secretaries, the Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Air Force, and so forth, um, the, United, or the United States Space Force exists within the Department of the Air Force. So it's an independent service that does not have its own independent department. Um, and this places it in the same category as the United States Marine Corps. Um, it has quasi-independent training and doctrinal structures. These are still developing um, independent structures that are moving away from the Air Force, but because of the precipitousness of its creation um, and also the pandemic, these, uh, these are still underway. Um, and it will, or at least is projected in the near future, to have 16,000 personnel, mostly from the United States Air Force and mostly from Air Force Space Command. Um, but there are folks from other services moving into uh, Space Force and who are expected to move into Space Force. And that's actually an interesting question that, that folks might bring up in the, the question and answer period is how does Space Force relate 
not just to the Air Force, but to other institutions. Broadly, um, the in responsibilities of Space Force uh, are supposed to be independent space operations, um, which can cover a whole, cover a whole bevy of uh, different things that uh, an organization can do. Um, but the people are thinking about in terms of uh, defensive and offensive operations, <clears throat> particularly in space and against other space assets. Um, the management of the space commons, right? So ensuring in the same way that the Navy ensures the transitability of the maritime commons, the Space Force ensures that the space commons is useful or is usable not just for the United States government, but also for private organizations, private firms, and for U.S. allies. Um, and probably at this moment, most important, joint operations and support for other services. This is its main obligation and likely will be its main obligation for the foreseeable future is managing the space problems that other services have, which is basically what Air Force Space Command has been doing for a good long time. Right, so some arguments for, and these are things that uh, I evaluated in the course of the policy brief um, to sort of think through, you know, what are the arguments that creation of a new independent service um, uh, is actually a good idea. Um, and then the, the, the arguments, the good arguments about boil down to a few. Um, other services have a, a priorities. Um, it is important to enable the development of professional pathways in space, which is to say, to uh, create incentives for the uh, development of human capital around space expertise, to create space officers, right? Not people who uh, have to rely on being able to fly a jet fighter or a bomber, but people who can dedicate their entire careers to developing space professional expertise. Um, to enable the development of strategic space theory, right? To create, you know, to not to belabor the point, but to create a space in which people can think about space. Um, in the same way that uh, the Air Force Tactical School way back when, or the Air uh, Corps Tactical School way back when, created space for people to think about air warfare. Um, the idea of unifying space acquisition, right, so that you have one place rather than four different services that are thinking about space and are thinking about bringing in new, uh, uh, <clears throat> new sorts of equipment, um, but to instead unify that within a single service that um, can then have sort of applied theoretical, theoretical expertise to the uh, development of acquisition. And really, and this is sort of down the road, um, to break away from the idea that space is essentially um, a service organization that serves the needs of the joint fight, right? So that Space Force is intended to serve the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps, and the Air Force, and rather to think about what emergent qualities are there um, that Space Force can tackle, right? So to give people an area where they can start thinking about space in a really serious way. Um, I did want to pause here and talk a few about a few of the bad ones. I'm going to do this really briefly. Um, the first is we need Space Force because space is a domain. Um, domains are a human construction, and there are lots of different things that are domains, and we don't give them all new independent services. Um, other countries do space. This is a true thing. But other countries do space in institutional and bureaucratic structures, which are a lot different than what we're seeing right now in Space Force. And finally, space is important, right? We all agree that space is important. Water is also important. Underwater is important. Underground is important. We don't give all of these things different services. So what about some of the anti-space uh, force logics? Um, the anti-space force logics is the, are that, um, and we'll get a little bit more into these, um, that space force is likely to result in a reduction of jointness, right? that, that the creation of an independent organization with its own ways of thinking um, is likely to detract from the ability of that organization to provide services to uh, the rest of the Department of Defense. Um, that you're creating an extra layer of bureaucracy, which is important 
uh, whenever military organizations have to speak with one another, but it's particularly important with space because all of the other military organizations depend acutely on space for their day-to-day -day activities. Um, to generate a, a culture of independent action. Now, this is a pro and a con, right? Because you want people thinking about the positives of, uh, uh, of um, sort of independent space action, what that might deliver to the country. But on the other hand, we have lots of examples from history where independent-minded military organizations create problems for the overall defense enterprise. And then the acceleration of offensive warfare doctrines. Um, it is not unheard of for new military organizations to adopt offensive rather than defensive doctrines in order to capture autonomy, in order to capture resources. And in particular, because of the nature of space, um, where we have a number of large, fragile objects, this could be problematic. Bad arguments against uh, Space Force, I've already touched upon. Militarization of space, right? Space has been militarized for a long time, so it's not anything new um, to say this is militarized. So what do we expect when we're expecting a new service? Um, well, we expect that the service is going to have a lot of joint responsibilities, and this is something we would hope Space Force would do well, um, because its uh, responsibility of Air Force Space Command has already primarily been joint, right? That's serving um, the other services. I have a friend who jokes that Space Force is the only non-lethal um, military service, and that may be true for the immediate future, but it won't be true for long. Um, we can expect there to be bureaucratic politics. Um, when we created the Air Force way back when, um, it resulted in bitter infighting uh, between the Air Force and its sister services, um, and some of that infighting continues today, and we also see that infighting in other countries. Um, we can expect the development of a new organizational culture, and this has been uh, an issue that uh, people around Space Force have talked about a lot, um, that there thus far is not uh, a sort of a core noticeable organizational culture um, in Space Force, um, and that in a lot of ways Space Force is starting from scratch, and we'll return to this question. And resource competition, which is really the flip side of uh, bureaucratic politics, um, is that you're going to have institutions struggling for a limited number of defense dollars, and some sort of allowance is going to have to be made for Space Force alongside the other um, service. Um, briefly, in terms of the defense budget, we actually don't have a ton of uh, really good information about how Space Force is going to affect the defense budget in the long term. Um, uh, about how it's going to uh, sort of demand uh, new procurement dollars, how large it's going to be. We know how large it's going to be in five years, probably, but we don't have a sense of how large it's going to be in 15 or 20 years. Um, we don't have a sense of uh, what its basing is going to look like, what its personnel overhead is going to look like, how big it's going to be. Um, all of these are questions that one would often expect to answer prior to the creation of a new service rather than sometime after a new service, which is effectively the point. Um, uh, the, the, of the uh, entire uh, paper, the, uh, the uh, white paper that I've written. A little bit on the comparison uh, with uh, Air Force. Um, the Air Force uh, was a, uh, uh, founded in 1947 from a number of different um, uh, antecedent organizations, as uh, you can see from the slide. Um, the point I want to make here is that the cultural organizational and experiential gulf between the Air Force in 47 and the Space Force in 2020 is immense and is difficult to overstate. The United States Air Force in 1947 was huge. It had fought a war. It had a strong organizational culture. It had a strong and robust um, set of theories and doctrines about how air warfare was supposed to be conducted. It knew where it had been and it knew where it was going, right? Space Force, in a sense, 
has some of these things, but not nearly to the same extent as the Air Force had in 1947. Right? So the comparison here in terms of creating a new service very heavily weighs um, uh, on the suggestion that, in fact, Space Force is much more novel in 2020 than Air Force was in 1947. Um, some concluding thoughts. Uh, Space Force is about, uh, again, it's a bureaucratic reform. It's about resolving a bureaucratic problem, not just about fighting in space. Space is really critical to the function of all the existing branches of the US military, and so it's something that the military has to get right. And unfortunately, in my view, um, we haven't really worked out yet exactly what Space Force is going to do in terms of furthering the missions that it has already um, uh, been tasked with. Um, we are allowing the risk of, or we are running the risk of allowing parochial bureaucratic interests to reduce the effectiveness of the entire force. And so we have created a new service in a way and with a foundation that to me looks particularly risky and probably should have been more carefully considered um, than it was. And with that, um, I will cease my prepared remarks and uh, return. Next, um, so I wanted to start. Thank you, Eric, Cato, Rob, and Brian for um, being on this great discussion with me. I'm really uh, looking forward to it. I think you know, Eric's quite right. As we near the Space Force's first birthday, it's a great time to uh, have a critical eye on what their performance and progress has been thus far. Um, and for me, that is looking at what the primary focuses of Congress were when they established the Space Force last year. Um, I identify those as organizational, cultural, um, and acquisition. And so, Starting off with organization, we have heard some rumors about basing um, the headquarters of the Space Force should be at the Pentagon, just like all the other services. Um, but it, it has been rumored that um, there's a handshake agreement to wait until the NDAA is signed, but both Patrick Air Force Base and Cape Canaveral will become Space Force uh, bases. And I think we're seeing some encouraging signs that General Raymond, the chief space operator, a guy in charge, uh, is focused on reducing hierarchy, reducing bureaucracy, working to make um, the Space Force more distinct from the Air Force organizations that it inherited. Um, to do so, he set up three commands thus far, the Space Operations Command, Space Training and Readiness Command, and the Space Systems Command. Um, again, most of this activity has happened in the last six months, so it's it's a little early to judge. Um, but I do think that the, the culture piece is really important, and Rob lays this out um, really well and, and says that culture is critically important to the functioning of a military organization. And I believe if you listen to experts on organizational culture, especially uh, outside of the military, um, as well. They'll tell you that change takes years or even decades. It's a really slow process. It needs strong leadership and direction without. Um, Space Force is, again, under a year old, but as an outside observer, I would really emphasize that these changes are going to need to outlive General Raymond, who is really driving um, the culture change and, and be instituted in such a way that they can grow and, and take shape on their own their own and become um, a foundational uh, culture 
uh, for the Space Force. I don't think that this means the Space Force is going to, you know, become a culture surrounded around combat or we'll see, you know, Space Force personnel in space with laser guns and lightsabers anytime soon. But we are seeing a increase in the use and normalization of use of counter space weapons. And this is something that both my organization and Brian's organization track on a yearly basis. Um, and I think it's it's fair to assume that in the future, the Space Force will have to engage in, in space combat, which might look different than combat on Earth, um, to protect US space systems, military, civil, and commercial. And I think um, the commercial is a really important point for me. The Space Force uh, should balance this warfighting rhetoric with the defense of space systems. And like the Navy defends and ensures freedom of the seas, the Space Force needs to be prepared to protect US commercial space interests, ensure freedom in and operation um, and use of space. Uh, Dr. Farley brings up that um, you know, anti-satellite weapons um, may not fully be under the control of the Space Force, but I think um, a lot while this might this is true in one subset of, of counter space weapons, there are some others that I believe are likely uh, under the control of the Space Force. It's all classified, so I, I don't know for sure. But um, these would be, in my mind, the, the counter space weapons that are more likely to be used um, and, and are of a lower threshold than um, the ones that the Air Force and Navy currently have under their control, which are direct ascent ASATs or a missile launched from Earth into space that either directly hits a satellite or explodes near enough one that that satellite is, is dead. Um, the ones that we're seeing uh, being used more commonly and, and being used in peacetime, especially by Russia and China, um, are counter space weapons like jamming, spoofing, possibly lazing, um, in co-orbital counter space systems, these are all likely underneath the Space Force in some uh, way or another. Um, I think acquisition is the last piece and, and possibly the most challenging. Um, we hear about how broken the acquisition system is, especially for space. And many satellites take years, like five to 10 years. Um, and I'm not talking about a constellation. I'm not talking about several. I'm talking about one satellite. Um, and so if you think about your cell phone five to 10 years ago, uh, I think you'll understand the problem that the satellites we're launching into space now are quite out of date with the technology that's available today. And so this is a real urgency for the Space Force. And there have been a few proposed changes that can be made. Some will need congressional approval. Um, and many were included in an acquisition document the Space Force submitted to Congress, um, but then in May, I think, and quickly rolled it back after maybe receiving some negative feedback. Um, so getting this document out is really imperative. We've been waiting for about six months now to see it. Um, I was hoping it would be a quickly updated thing and republished, um, but I have yet to see it. Um, it did highlight some of these uh, structural bureaucratic changes it could, that could be made to um, speed up space acquisition, like moving decision authorities to lower levels like program managers so that you don't have to wait for everybody in the chain of command to approve something. 
Um, some of this could be the way we budget for space programs. Um, right now, the entire constellation, the whole program of several satellites may be funded in just one year. We have seen great success in some kind of experimental budgeting processes of, of funding by one satellite at a time. Um, and this has over the long term saved money and made the acquisition process a little bit uh, faster. And so that could be another another way um, to move forward. But the other focus of acquisition is not just buying the big things. It's supporting innovation and more quickly capitalizing on commercial technologies. General Raymond has said many times that he wishes to start buying more commercial services, not just launch or communications, which is what the military has traditionally relied on commercial um, markets for, but space situational awareness or space domain awareness, um, perhaps on-orbit servicing as this new technology comes online, ISR capabilities. Um, it's really endless. The um, This should be really encouraging to both the established defense industry, but really the burgeoning new space market and the space economy that um, we are hoping to see maybe in the next uh, few decades. And, and this is also what the space development agency, the SDA, was founded to do. And um, that organization has chosen to first focus on a proliferated LEO constellation. Um, but they were really founded to, to capitalize on, more quickly capitalize on commercial technologies and bring them into, um, uh, into the, the military fold um, to test these technologies and see how useful they can be. There's also a new congressionally appointed position in the Air Force, the Assistant Secretary for Space Acquisition and Integration. Uh, they report directly to the Secretary of the Air Force and are supposed to serve as the senior kind of architect for all space systems and programs across DOD. So this will be a really challenging position. Certainly they will be able to coordinate within the Air Force and within the Space Force. Coordinating outside these services might be more challenging right now. Uh, the deputy is performing the duties of that role. Um, so the responsibilities haven't been fully fleshed out. It's very new. Um, but this is a position that I think the Biden administration should fill quickly and that that person that goes into that role will have great influence over that office's uh, effectiveness and success. So it should be very thoughtfully done. Um, as I said earlier, one thing that I think the Space Force could uh, do a bit better is, is refocus its rhetoric. It, with the space power doctrine and, and some of the publications coming out of the Space Force thus far, um, it's been very focused on war fighting and, and space is still a relatively peaceful domain. Um, and the trends we see for future space constellations are mostly driven by commerce, not by the military and protecting these interests and protecting US space assets from counter space weapons should be paramount, um, but also supporting international efforts to better govern space, to better cooperate with our allies and partners um, and, and really ensure the uh, freedom of use for all space nations and emerging space, na space nations um, of the domain. Um, I think this kind of falls into that doctrine and theory part of Rob's piece. Um, it was extremely interesting. And I know there are other scholars, uh, space scholars doing this work in academia. 
Um, but at only one year old, I don't think that that was quite the top of the priority list for General Raymond, um, who's been focusing on pulling the organization together, getting the right people in the jobs and restructuring um, and creating this, this unique small service, as, as Rob pointed out. Um, I think there are a lot of pieces of this conversation and I'm very excited for the discussion, but I'm gonna turn it over to Brian. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Eric, for inviting me to participate. Um, I'm going to touch on several of the same themes uh, that they did, uh, but 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 it's kind of expanded in places and add in some different uh, perspectives. So just to start with, um, I too was very much a skeptic uh, on the creation of the Space Force uh, early on. Um, I participated in several debates with people that were proponents back in 2017-18 when all this was just going on. Um, even though I was skeptical, I, I did agree with the proponents of Phase Force on the shortcomings of the existing system. Uh, as, as Rob mentioned, you know, fixing acquisitions, doing a better job developing a truly professional space cadre that was not built around pilot culture, and developing a space doctrine. I think there was general agreement among all of us that the existing culture bureaucratic setup within the Air Force was preventing it from addressing those challenges. My opposition to the Space Force was that it wasn't clear to me how creating a new service was going to address those core problems. Uh, now that said, the best argument for creating the Space Force from its proponents was that creating a new organizational structure and a new culture would was necessary to fix those underlying problems. In other words, the existing structure was preventing those problems from being addressed. So we had to break away, create a new structure, a new culture, so that then we could fix the problems. And I think there, there is some merit to that. What that does mean though, is that this is a long-term process. And that's sort of one of the first challenges we have is there are people out there taking political credit for the Space Force and saying basically the things are done, we've won now that we've created the Space Force, when really creating the Space Force is the very first step in what's going to be a long, multi-year, probably multi-decade effort to try and address some of these challenges. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to Rob's point about, you know, should we put more thought into it? I, I can see both sides of that, right? The space community has been debating whether or not there should be a separate service or entity for space since essentially the Rumsfeld Commission report came out in January 2001. So this has been a long running debate. Um, now, it also happened very quickly. Uh, if you think back to 2016, 2017, Representative uh, Rogers from Alabama started pushing this issue on the Hill at the time was calling for a space core and had bipartisan support for that um, in the House. Ran into some challenges in the Senate, which of course is not, not unusual. Um, but then what happened is that President Trump got involved and essentially forced the, polit the politics on this to resolve and, and, and using his power forced through the creation of the Space Force. And that, I think that short-circuited some of the, the, the last minute um, discussion, debate about how to do this in the best way uh, that that might have might have helped things. 
Um, you know, to Rob's point, I think the bureaucratic infighting is definitely a big, big challenge that's going to be coming. For those of you who saw the Space Force TV show on Netflix, I think that was one of the most accurate parts was the budget hearing they had and sort of the back and forth with the different services um, over, you know, they're fighting about the budget. We're going to see that coming, I think, in FY22 budget discussions. We're already hearing rumors that that is going to be a quote-unquote bloodbath from uh, General Miley, or Millie. Uh, you know, aside from that, it's really way too early to tell whether Space Force has actually been a good thing and addressed all these challenges. I think they've made some progress in a few areas. There are some things that I'm going to point to in a second, but but we're still a long ways over from a long ways from being able to self tell for sure. Um, on the things they've gotten gotten right to the point both Caitlin and Rob made about um, you know a new approach to the organization, the planning guidance from General Raymond I think was very good in terms of outlining how to build a truly digital service and to take a new approach to military organization personnel systems that that's really important I think it's necessary because. For the first time, we have a military service that is not people heavy, right? Look at the Army, you look at the Navy, look even the Air Force. You need a lot of people to support the things that they're often doing. And, and oftentimes, people are the ones, troops on the ground, actually, you know, fighters in the, in the cockpit, uh, you know, occupying and running all the warships. Space is very, very different. It's all robots. And the robots are largely controlled by a couple of computers. So in terms of the normal military hierarchy, personnel setup organization, that's going to be, that has to be very, very different for space. Um, they're trying to come up with a new culture, the, the terminology, deltas and garrisons, things that, you know, are, are sort of shocking for us that, you know, for people like me that grew up in the Air Force Space Command, we're used to squadrons and bases. Um, but, but I think that's an important part of the transition. In terms of things I think they need to do a better job of, as Caitlin mentioned, the warfighting rhetoric, I understand why they're talking about warfighting. That's important. The problem is most people in the public don't understand what a warfighting culture means. They assume the Space Force wants to go off and kill people and blow up cities, what other warfighters do. The reality is they run GPS and weather satellites, and they keep satellites from crashing into each other. I, as Caitlin pointed out, I think the single-minded focus and rhetoric on war, war, war reinforces the wrong perceptions about what the Space Force is doing, and it creates both domestic policy problems and diplomatic problems. Um, Caitlin talked about acquisitions. That is the single hardest problem to solve, and, and, and it's going to, because you not only have the bureaucracy with the other services, you have the bureaucracy within the Air Force, you have institutions and, and constituencies within Congress to deal with. There's lots of stuff we can unpack on here, but there's challenges between the US uh, Space Force as a force provider, dealing with the COCOMs, dealing with the other services, um, lots of big challenges there. Um, other big issue is deterrence. The message from the senior leadership is where the main goal is to deter attacks on US satellites, but there's been very little discussion on how to do that deterrence. We have not really had a national conversation on what is space deterrence, what is the best way to do that, like we have for other domains. Uh, and then finally, I'll say that the area that is the biggest challenge so far is the links between the Space Force and sort of what I'll call science fiction. Um, 
you've seen some advertisements from the space force involving you know potentially people and and you know boots on the moon sort of mars sort of reference that is not going to happen anytime in the next several decades that is not what's happening um and so i think part of it is the message control to give it, tell the public what it's actually happening but also we're starting to see some of the space force people and perhaps leadership get a bit distracted from the core challenges like gps jamming and and you know how do we better integrate and support space services into and defend them uh, into terrestrial combat and war fighting and operations getting distracted by things like the moon uh which again that is leave that to nasa that that is sort of outside of the bounds i think you need to focus on at the moment so i will stop there um again thank you very much for inviting me and happy to discuss this um as we in the discussion period all right uh thank you all for the prepared remarks um so now we're going to shift to the q a uh segment of the of the event um you can as a reminder you can submit questions via the website here um uh, via i think the service is called slido um, you can also submit them if you're watching on social media platforms uh, by using the hashtag CatoFP. Um, so i'm going to i have a few uh questions in the docket already um so please keep them coming um because we'll be we have a little under an hour left uh to answer questions the first couple i'm going to to bundle together um from hank myers uh he asks uh, given the success of privatizing rocket launches, is there a need? Is the need for the space force reduced? And then also, one of the major missions of NASA is research, including non-space related tech. Would that be part of the space force mission? And are there are, are the non-space research aspects important to the mission? Um, so, yeah, if, if uh, Robert, you can start us off on that. Um, Walk us through a bit. What does the uh, sort of private space sector do? Because it's exploded recently in the United States in terms of you know number of launches, number of cap its its own capability, and then also what does Space Force leave for NASA, and how does that affect the sort of civilian? We've talked a lot about how Space Force impacts the the sort of military picture, um, but how does it impact this private sector and civil government picture? So, uh, you know, the first part of the question is really interesting to me. Um, and I think this is one where we can sort of borrow a page from the way that uh, other services have thought about their missions and other services have theorized um, their role in national security. Um, and, and what you'll find when you when you dig into a lot of space force or space thinking, right, not necessarily space force thinking, but space thinking, is that there are very explicit efforts to sort of borrow some stuff from Mahan or Corbett or borrow some stuff um, from Mitchell or Duhet, um, with 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 the Mahan and Corbett being sort of a lot more sound than the Mitchell and Duhet, um, and you know if we then sort of go step back and 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 think about space force in the same way that maritime theorists think about the maritime domain, then you know the proliferation of private space companies um, is something that really reaffirms the idea that there should be some sort of military provision for space, right? Um, I want to emphasize that that doesn't mean there should be a space force, but it does mean that the military should be thinking about space because part of the point of the United States military is to protect the prosperity of Americans and the lives of Americans. And if American private enterprise um, is capable of launching uh, rockets and taking commercial advantage of space, and if Americans 
benefit from the fact that they're not going to get lost on their way to the grocery store anymore because they have GPS, um, then that's really something we take seriously. Um, and that's a value that we have, and that's a value that should be protected by our national security establishment. Um, now, again, that doesn't mandate any specific notion uh, or any specific bureaucratic structure. But it does tell us that space is something that is important to more than just the military, but rather to all of civilian life and civilian prosperity in the United States and elsewhere, um, and that we should be paying attention to space in, in military terms. Um, and I suppose I would also say that, you know, to the extent that, that we want to take space seriously and we want to take um, having military capabilities in space seriously, um, the uh, investment of the private sector in all kinds of technologies associated with rockets and delivery systems and, you know, delivery into orbit um, is something that you, you would expect to find um, dual-use technologies. You would expect to find you know, whatever space institutions, military institutions you have in the United States benefiting from developments in the private sector. Um, now, the other way around, I think, is a little bit more complicated, and I think that, that maybe Brian um, would want to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, generally speaking, I guess my, my takeaways would be that private sector in space is probably great for uh, Space Force or Space Corps or Space Command. Um, and that you know, part of the point of space military forces is to protect um, private prosperity. I think that, that that's, a, that's yeah. a good starting point for this. Uh, Couple things to add onto that. One, uh, on the issue of the commercial, very much agree. We're going to, I think, we're going to see the same growth in commercial that we we see in other domains. And at some point, that's going to be the dominant amount of activity in space, uh, which raises some interesting comparisons with the maritime world. Um, but I think part of the question was more towards the contracting piece. How does Space Force leverage that? I think. What we're seeing is that the commercial industry is starting to provide more capabilities the military can do or can purchase instead of the military having to do those in-house. That's what sort of what Kate was referring to. But there are still going to be capabilities the military needs that are not provided by industry because there's no market for them other than the government. And so we're still going to need the Space Force or whoever to be, you know, developing some capabilities, uh, whether that's launch or communications or, or different sorts of, you know, satellite uh, technologies itself, because they're just not going to be there on the market. Um, to the NASA point, I think this is really important because this gets to what I was mentioning about sort of the confusion, at least in the public confusion, about what the Space Force is doing versus NASA. NASA is still continuing. In fact, NASA gets more money than the Space Force does, or, or that you know the Air Force Space Command did prior to it being dissolved. NASA's mission is exploration. NASA's mission is you know human space flight. It is core space science, and it also has a huge uh, soft power diplomacy aspect to its activities. All that is going to continue. The Space Force is not really is not doing any of that. I can see there's going to be some expansion of what the Space Force is doing, perhaps into cislunar space with situational awareness of cislunar space, of maybe expanding some of the communications infrastructure, monitoring certain activities. But there are not going to be Space Force, you know, troops that are flying in, you know, space fighter jets, and that's not going to happen. Uh, at least not in the next 50 years, maybe 100 years, uh, they're not going to be on the moon. So NASA is going to continue doing what it's doing. 
Space Force is going to be mostly focused on space capabilities as they apply to and enhance terrestrial military operations with maybe expanded situation awareness role, sorry, situation awareness role for assist lunar activities. Great, thank you, Brian. And Caitlin, I think you wanted to add something on this point. Yeah, I just wanted to add um, a quick thought on what the government and Space Force's interest in procuring com uh, commercial space services mean. And I think it's a really great sign that the government is willing to invest in um, other, in especially new companies. Right now, the, the new space market is often funded by, as we've seen, billionaires with uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but also with angel investment um, funding. And so if the government is willing to step up and, and be a purchaser of these services or even to help um, support the innovation and, and funding these startups um, and investing in new companies and new technologies. It's a great signal to the commercial space market that what it's doing um, is great work and there's um, you know good interest in the government, which is a stable um, purchaser of services uh, for the future. Excellent. And we're getting a nice steady uh, flow of questions in here. So thank you all for being such a engaged audience out there too. I'm going to group a few together. Um, several of you have asked about other countries that are doing things in outer space. Um, this one comment from Ryan, for example, says, uh, do you think it weakens the argument an independent US space force is unnecessary when other countries are doing similar things uh, Russia has the VKS, China has the Strategic Support Force, uh, Japan, France, India, ROK are also making moves in this domain. Um, and several other people have asked, you know, how does the Space Force differ from other countries that are looking at space-based military forces such as Russia and China? Um, so if, if uh, Brian, you could start us off by sort of giving us a sense of, you know, what's out there uh, in other countries and how does the Space Force compare to them? Sure thing. Um, so, and it's a great question. We get the question all the time. I start with Russia and China. Um, both countries are doing a lot in space. Uh, Russia, of course, during the Cold War was a space superpower. That somewhat went away after the fall of the Soviet Union due to budgetary problems. Uh, but over the last 15 years or so, uh, Russia has really invested a lot more money in trying to build back up their space capabilities. China uh, is on the path to become a space superpower. They're building out a huge suite of military, civil, and commercial space activities um, that largely reflect what the US already has. And of course, the US is, is still the predominant space power. Um, on, on sort of this military aspect of things, Russia and China are both doing a lot, but they have different military structures. On the Russian side, uh, the Russian Russia has a, a really integrated aerospace uh, defense command, which combines space with air defense, which is sort of an unusual combination we don't really think about too much here in the US, but things like high altitude, uh, air defense, missile defense, and space are sort of all collected together within, uh, within the Russian military. Um, on China's side, uh, a lot of news was made about the strategic support force that was created in 2015, 
as signs that China was getting serious about space war fighting. I think th there's definitely some signs to be concerned about in terms of their focus on space, but it is not a space force. What's interesting about the Chinese SSF is that it combines together counter space capabilities with electronic warfare and cyber capabilities. Those are all packaged together in the same uh, uh, military organization, I think mainly because China views them as all being very uh, interrelated to each other and and sort of working well together. So essentially, China's not done, China's done the opposite of what the US has done. Instead of splitting space out as something very separate, they've deliberately integrated it to other things. I would just build on on what Brian says um, about China really looking at space as part of its information services and information support, um, tying it in with with cyber and electronic. Um, it's telling about how they view space, and and it's something that um, I argued a few years ago before space uh, force was actually started was that maybe we needed to look at a an innovative model for space. And I think um, Dr. Farley gets at this a little bit in his report is that we're both trying to have space be independent and joint, and there's no other service that looks quite like this. Um, but I also think that, you know, it's unlikely the Biden administration is going to disestablish Space Force. That would require an act of Congress. And so we kind of need to mold what we have into a successful force. Um, but what has really been um, taken by our allies and partners is, is seeing what China and Russia have been doing for counter space forces. And then also um, what, uh, you know, what the, how the United States has responded with space force. And we've seen um, NATO designate space as a war fighting domain. We've seen the UK step up in space, Australia, um, and as was mentioned earlier, also Japan, France, India, all of these other uh, countries are also looking at their own military space forces and, and then heavily investing in them as well. And so um, for me, cooperation with our partners and allies is extremely important. And, and the Space Force definitely plays a, a large part in that. what um, Caitlin and Brian were, were both just mentioning. Um, when, when you look at you know, different military institutional structures around the world, um, you, you find pretty quickly that it becomes really, really difficult to make any kind of one-to-one -one comparison, especially when um, the, the institutional structures in Russia, the institutional structures in China are so radically different than what they are in the United States. And so the argument that, well, China has a space force, and so therefore we need a space force um, sort of, in my view, becomes facile pretty quickly. Um, I think the better case is that China is building up its space capabilities through a variety of different institutional uh, constructs, and therefore uh, that calls on the United States to build up its space capabilities through, you know, a variety of different uh, institutional constructs, right? That doesn't mean you need a space force, right? Um, it does mean you have to address a problem, but that's all, that's all that it means. Um, and the comparison with Russia, you know, I think, is very similar. Um, I mean, to my understanding, the, the closest that any country comes to having something that looks like our Space Force is, is kind of France, and even, even theirs is sort of at, at the inception. Um, 
You know, I also want to drag in and something that Caitlin mentioned, um, which is, um, and I think it emerged over the over the past few days that some progressive groups were jumping to put pressure um, on the Biden administration to disband uh, Space Force. And there wasn't a lot of detail about this, but uh, I think General General Rand pushed back on this. Um, you know, part of the problem that that I have with the way that that Space Force has been formulated um, is that it, it seemed to be very easy to do. Uh, between 2018 and 2020, when, when there seemed to be political motivation for it. Um, but I think it's going to be awfully hard to undo. Um, and even now, the, the word out of the Biden administration is that you know, even one year into the existence of Space Force, there is absolutely no political appetite uh, on the part of the administration um, to rethink its existence, right? So um, you, have, you have an institution which in, in, in the most public circles was not really extensively debated. Um, you know, it did pass legislation, but we didn't have sort of have a long debate about the existence of this. And now it's going to be very difficult to stop at some point and say, hey, you know, this was maybe not such a great idea. Maybe we should have thought about something like the uh, strategic support force instead. Let's go back and reconfigure. Um, you can't even do that one year after the institution has been founded. I think it's going to be impossible to do it 10 or 15 years. Um, and that, you know, from from a perspective of institutions that's relatively conservative, I think I think has to be of some concern. All right. Thank you all very much. And as a someone who who I work a lot on the China issue, I also was was kind of a fan of of the strategic support force and how it wasn't just about space and how it combined uh, several things to it. So I'm glad we could get into that a little bit more in this in this uh, event here. Um, uh, next, I have a pair of questions uh, from Eugene Goltz um, of Notre Dame, also you know, big friend of Cato. Um, and he has two about some of the organizational aspects. So first, he says, I was surprised that no one mentioned the National Reconnaissance Office or NRO, especially when discussing the alleged advantages of centralizing acquisition. The NRO already centralizes some important space acquisitions what does that experience suggest for Space Force? And what will the relationship between the Space Force and the NRO be? And the second question talks about the, the need for space culture as distinct from the US Air Force was suggested as a reason to have a Space Force. But the US is already generally good at space and it uses it much more than any other country. Uh, what are the specific flaws in US Air Force culture uh, that need to be addressed through the Space Force? And Caitlin, can you start us off? I can. Um, so to, to start on the NRO, um, that was something that was talked about before the Space Force was officially fun founded, um, whether to include the NRO or not, Congress decided to leave it alone. Um, why ruin something or mess with something that's successful, especially when you're looking at government bureaucracy, I think was uh, the main point there. Uh, but there is a good working relationship between the Space Force and the NRO already. Um, and I believe um, there was a, a statement that in, in wartime, the NRO would defer to Space Force. I'm trying to remember this. This is about a year ago and you know the pandemic just throws everything out of your head anyway. Um, but I think there are a lot of lessons learned. There are, have always been a lot of Air Force personnel going in and out of the NRO, 
Hopefully that continues with the Space Force. I see no reason why it wouldn't. And they bring back, hopefully, these great practices, especially for acquisition, as was mentioned, um, that are, are very successful on the NRO. The second piece on culture was that, um, and this is something that was highlighted in the 2008 Allard Commission, was um, the Air Force tended to send uh, service members into space jobs for one cycle of two years or so, and then would bring them back out. And so there was no real culture of space warfighting, led, maybe led to a lot of these issues that Rob actually um, addressed in his piece about um, the lack of doctrine and theory. Um, there is also, um, you know, not a, uh, there was not a great STEM pipeline into the Space Force. Um, and so we are really seeing the Space Force thus far focus on the people aspect um, and getting the right people in the jobs to create this cadre of professionals uh, specifically for space. And this will take time. Um, and we'll start at the lowest levels. We already have, I think they took about 80 of the cadets from the Air Force Academy into the Space Force. Um, and I, I imagine that that relationship between the Academy and the Space Force will continue to evolve and grow as well. So just to, to add on to what Caitlin said, you know, it's fascinating because you know, and before it, we, it existed publicly as an acknowledged organization, right? The NRO was, you know, some intense was under the Air Force in that it's always been a it's been a, a, a trilateral program where it has an Air Force component, a uh, a Navy component, and a CA component. Which was sort of the, the original three constituencies that made up the NRO. Um, and the Air Force component was you know was was uh, secretly under Air Force leadership for quite a while. I think to reinforce Caitlin said, you know, Congress put the NRO off limits in this discussion. And, and essentially said, you know, whatever we do with this thing, we might call it Space Force, Space Corps, whatever, it's not going to include the NRO. It's not going to touch the NRO. And I think part of that was, you know, the intelligence community, you know, kind of, you know, circling the wagons and trying to defend its, its you know, share of the budget pie and its authorities from being mixed in everything else. I think there's also a sense in Congress, as, as Caitlin hinted to, to, to not screw things up. Um, it, you know, it's very hard to, confirm this publicly because it's a it's a, it's a classified intelligence service, but um, the general sense in the community that, is that the NRO does do a better job of acquisitions and has done some better acquisitions reform and working better on resilience and, and has, you know, already tackled a lot of the questions that the Space Force is meant to, meant to address. And there was a concern that sort of lumping that together, the Space Force might destroy that or, or halt those changes. I think that was sort of the, one of the big um, challenges there. So for the time being, um, we're going to have the, the NRO is off doing sort of the intelligence piece of national security space, and the Space Force ostensibly off doing the military piece of national security space. And it's an open question as to how those are going to be coordinated from, particularly from an architectural standpoint, right? When both the Space Force and the NRO are procuring new systems to meet capabilities, a, what, what, whose requirements are they following, and, and how do you address sort of overlap or, or redundancies uh, uh, or, or duplication of effort between the, those things? Um, now, on the uh, on, on the operational part, um, NRO is going to defer to Space Command. So this is an important point we didn't really get to beforehand. 
Space Force and US Space Command are different, th different entities doing different missions. Space Force is the service provider, like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and their job is to uh, recruit new people, train them to do things, procure capabilities, and then match those people and capabilities. Then there's also the combatant commands, Indo-PACOM, CENTCOM, UCOM, AFRICOM, they run operations. And so what happens is you have, you know, for example, Iraq exists within CENTCOM, the CENTCOM commander runs that operation and the services send ships, planes, infantry divisions, you know, MEUs over to fulfill the combatant commander's needs. Same thing in space, you have the Space Force developing space capabilities, and then US Space Command is the combatant commander to actually run operations and, and you know and do those military activities. And yes, there is an agreement to where, you know, should there be a conflict and should NRO assets be involved, the the US Space Command commander as the COCOM is going to be uh will be in charge of NRO assets. Hey, so um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the the, the cultural question um, and uh, sort of this notion that uh, that uh, uh, you know the United States has been pretty good in space and uh, there are sort of already existing problems with with Air Force culture. So how are you going to grow a space force culture or a space culture um, within the Air Force? Um, and I think you know so longtime readers will know that I'm no fan of the United States Air Force or even of the, and, and sort of my 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 view on defense reform. Um, is not uh, uh, sort of one that is that is pro Air Force, but um, I do think that we we sometimes risk over caricaturizing um, uh, existing United States Air Force culture as being this fighter job culture uh, where um, you know flight hours are essentially uh, the core to being able to advance, and all the people think about it is sort of getting into the cockpit. However true that may have been 15 years ago, it's certainly less true now. Um, and uh, Air Force culture has in some ways become more flexible, in some ways it's become more sophisticated, um, sort of able to, has geared itself more in a technological direction um, rather than in a um, cockpit direction. Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, I think we can see this with, for example, the way that uh, the Air Force sort of initially grudgingly, but then later with both feet, jumped into uh, unmanned aerial vehicles and have actually done, in my view, a fairly creditable job of adapting to new technological realities. Um, so I don't think, you know, the Air Force is as bad culturally as um, uh, some of the some of the, the caricatures suggest. I would also say that um, there are ways of developing organizational cultures that are not as drastic as can be as creating an entirely new service. So um, we can look at the uh, existing services and we can see, for example, in the Navy, we have uh, different communities um, where you have very cu culturally distinct units between surface aviators and submariners, right? You have um, uh, different specializations in the Army where, again, you have very distinct cultures, sub-organizational cultures. Um, and so I think that it would have been possible um, either within the existing Air Force or within a um, reformed Department of Defense that did not focus so much on independent services um, to create some sort of sub-organization that could have facilitated and grown and nurtured um, a uh, sort of a space organization, right? space organizational culture. 
Um, and perhaps that was the road not taken, or perhaps it would be different if we had gone with the Space Corps instead of the Space Force. Um, but uh, the answer, or, or, or creating an entirely new service is not the only answer to the need to develop a, an organizational culture. And in my view, generally speaking, the organizational culture should precede, precede uh, the creation of the new service. All right. Um getting a lot of good questions so there might be a chance that we don't quite get to all of them but i'm going to try and and group thematic ones as much as i can here um so this is a, a question that has come from one anonymous person and uh craig rispoli who's watching on facebook and it has to do with you know some of these other entities that we talked about a little earlier that are operating in space um the anonymous commenter says uh you know, Elon Musk has already made the claim that Mars is a free planet uh, that will recognize no Earth-based governments, with private industry being a very fast-moving player in space exploration and expansion. What can Space Force do to ensure the, its role in maintaining space security, and does it create sort of new challenges? And then Craig Raspoli from Facebook says, sort of in a similar vein, as commercial entities continue to improve and proliferate their capabilities in space and the military exploits opportunities to make use of those capabilities, uh, what role do potentially private en entities have to play in space security? Um, so this might be going back to a, a question we looked at a little earlier, but I think some of those, the, the role of private sector in uh, doing exploration and doing um, um, other, other types of things uh, and how does Space Force interact with this? Um, so uh, Caitlin first and then uh, Brian. Um, I have also heard and seen Elon Musk's uh, declaration of Mars. I know it was in the uh, Starlink service agreement or something like that. Um, I wanna focus more on what role private industry can play in the security of space. Uh, more in my wheelhouse, maybe, than Mars. Um, but uh, I think, you know, this the, as we see the normalization of use of, of counter space weapons, specific, uh, specifically jamming, um, I think that it really requires some effort and thought and standardization of security for space um, systems and, and hardware. Um, cyber counter space weapons are also prolific, however, extremely hard to track. Um, and so, you know, as the government starts to rely more and more on services from space, they'll, I'm sure, need to make sure that the, uh, the lines of communication are secure as well as uh, the satellites themselves. Um, I do think that it, it what uh, I do think that there's a worry um, if there's conflict in space, for example, and the government is using a commercial services provider's imaging, for example, of, of whatever area um, that the conflict is in, that that satellite, even though it's commercial, because it's providing a service to the government, could be at risk for one of these kind of counter space attacks. And um, perhaps it doesn't permanently damage the satellite, but just temporarily um, blocks communication through you know, jamming or um, temporarily takes it offline in, in another way. Um, 
you know, there's a, a real risk there of loss. And so like Brian said earlier, you can't, there are some things the government is just going to need to do on its own and the Space Force is going to need to do on its own or at least have um, its own system and backup. Um, but I, I think, again, that it's, uh, it's worth a conversation that is technically based um, and technically informed on what kind of uh, securities you could put into private systems um, to protect against uh, potential conflict. So uh, I'll take Mars. Um, well, not literally, of course. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the claims made in the terms of service of Starlink uh, uh, running counter to basically what every established uh, space lawyer says. So a little bit of space law 101. Um, there's a thing called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which is sort of the underlying or sorry, the overarching international law in space. Um, uh, Article 6 says that nation states are responsible for authorizing and continuously supervising their national space activities. And that includes government activities and private sector activities. So point one, if Elon ever does get to Mars, um, that is going to be an activity licensed and supervised by the United States government. Point two, the Outer Space Treaty says that all existing international law applies in space just like it applies here on Earth. So if you're, excuse me, if you're on Mars, UN Charter applies, uh, all the existing, you know, broad international laws apply. Uh, and it's up to the country licensing you to make sure that you as a company or as a private citizen or whatever else are complying with those international obligations. And then finally, the country that licenses you, all of their national laws apply to you. So it is Mars is not going to be a, a, a law-free zone by any means, unfortunately. Sorry to, to break that to some people. Um, but but that, that's sort of the framework. Now, we have no idea what the U.S. licensing framework for a private human crewed mission to Mars would look like because it's never happened before. Uh, they're still trying to figure that out. Um, and maybe at some point down the road when there's, well, if there are human settlements on Mars, that's a really big if from a technological standpoint, biological standpoint, you could possibly see a pathway to something uh, uh that might be uh independent political entity but that that is a long 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 ways off yeah i, I mean uh, i just want to take you. a moment here oh. oh go ahead rob yeah so um I, I just want to take a moment here and say that uh i think to echo uh brian and caitlin's comments that i mean th there there is a massive body of law on uh and body of precedent on uh in the maritime domain on what states can do to private actors um, who are uh, part or who belong to another state. Um, and so uh, if you go back to the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, um, the literature is vast on uh, the degree to which uh, the military forces of one state um, can blockade, can seize, can destroy um, privately owned ships, privately owned vessels from another state. I mean, I think sort of driven by the experience of the 20th century, that anyone who is relying upon uh, private ownership of uh, assets in space, whether it be satellites or spacecraft or anything else, to prevent them from being harassed or molested during a conflict with another nation state, um, is really being exceedingly optimistic. 
Um, and, and what that means is that eventually um, private actors attached to a particular state are, are going to have to rely on the protection of you know, whatever militarized space entities we have. And that's going to be true whether they are Chinese billionaires or American billionaires. Okay. Um, so this kind of piggybacks off of what Brian was mentioning about the Outer Space Treaty and how uh, activities in space are governed. We have a few questions um, from uh, folks like Nikita and a couple anonymous folks about how does Space Force affect uh, the prospects of cooperation between the United States and international or foreign entities that are also operating in space. Uh, Nikita asked specifically about um, the prospects of U.S.-Russia cooperation. Um, Caitlin, I know in your prepared remarks, you mentioned, you know, the U.S. needing to, to try and work more with friendly countries. But I'd also contend that, you know, as China and Russia become more and more prevalent in space, we'll also have to work with them too. And um, sort of getting into those questions of how do you establish international norms of behavior or have even like, I don't know, the equivalent of an arms control in space, right? To have uh, a measure of deconfliction or strategic stability as this becomes a more crowded space, <laughs> as space becomes a more crowded space. Um, Rob, could you start us off? Because I know that you uh, mentioned uh, some of this in your your paper about how a space force might create negative incentives to do uh, cooperative agreements, especially with potential adversaries, because military organizations tend not to like uh, to be controlled. Um, so if you could start us off, Rob, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I did think a little bit about this in the, the policy brief. Um, you know, it, 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 it's probably too much to say that it is an adamant law of international relations that um, military organizations tend to strongly oppose um, any kind of arms control negotiations that focus on their particular um, domain. Um, but it is, it's a pretty reliable finding that um, navies tend to hate naval arms control, air forces tend to hate um, air force or aerial arms control. Uh, and generally speaking, any uh, organization hates to have, or most military organizations strongly dislike the notion of um, international law that provides uh, strong restrictions on what they're able to do, because that, that, that changes the entire game for the military organization, right? If you say they can no longer build battleships, if you say they can only build a certain number of ballistic missiles or, or only put um, a certain number of uh, warheads on those ballistic missiles, um, then that's an external uh, infringement upon their sovereignty. Um, it's an infringement upon uh, how they go about planning for war. Um, and generally speaking, they just don't care for it. And we have we have lots of examples of this from the interwar period, um, from the pre-war period, um, from the Cold War period, um, where uh, military organizations provided lobbies within uh, government that were opposed to international arms control. Um, and so in that sense, right, if we're creating a military organization, an independent military organization um, that's specifically around space, um, it's not an iron lock that Space Force is going to provide a voice saying, you know, space arms control is bad. Um, but if I'm betting, that's probably going to be uh, where I'm going to say Space Force is going to come down on the question of uh, sort of multilateral arms control or even bilateral arms control in space. Now, that said, I don't think that needs to extend to the civilian realm. 
Um, I think that uh, United States and Russia, United States and China, um, still have uh, large avenues that are open in terms of bilateral cooperation on a lot of space technology stuff. Um, but I do think that the, the prospect for multilateral arms control in space takes a hit um, just from the creation of, of the United States Space Force. So I, I think I, I tend to agree with, with Rob, although I'll point out that the US, the US itself has been opposed to space arms control uh, since I'll say the 1975 or 70, man, end of the Carter administration essentially was the last time the US government effectively tried to do some sort of space arms control discussion with the Soviets. Uh, and that's typically because the, the argument has been, well, you know, we the United States are so much more powerful than everyone else in space that any kind of arms control is going to affect us more than other people. Um, I think I can kind of see that. But what we're seeing happen now is as Russia and China sort of are fleshing out their capabilities, at some point that relative power imbalance is going to shift. Uh, and I think there's probably going to be maybe a couple of things like destructive testing of anti-satellite weapons that creates orbital debris or even you know, space-based weapons that can target terrestrial facilities where there might be some room to have some discussions. Um, barring that though, I do think regardless of arms control discussion, there needs to be some discussion between at least the US and Russia and China on how to how to conduct military activities with each other. Um, and what we're worried about here is, you know, my satellite is doing some sort of intelligence operation shadowing your satellite, and you mistake that as, you know, a, a prelude to a, an armed attack, or there's an accident and my satellite bumps into your satellite and something's destroyed. We saw a similar thing happen uh, during the early Cold War years with the U.S. and Soviet ships and aircraft interacting on the high seas, and there were some dangerous uh, activities and intercepts which led to something called the Incidents at Sea Agreement that sort of codified how U.S. and Soviet ships and aircraft would interact and really helped, you know, cut down on some of those tensions and some of that, that those mistakes uh, that were happening during the Cold War. I, I really hope that we can find a way to have a similar discussion with Russia and China, maybe other military, you know, emerging military space actors on incidents in space and, and how to conduct military space, military space activities uh, um, in, in a way that is going to you know, help reduce the likelihood of mistakes and mishaps. I'd like to just build off of what Brian says, because I think the communication piece is really important between Russia, China, and the United States as the three largest actors in space. Um, coming up with common definitions. We don't even have a definition for a space weapon. Um, and so creating common language so that we can talk about these issues in multilateral and bilateral fora and understand what the other one is including in their definition of space weapon or not, for example, um, but also laying out where our own thresholds are. Part of deterrence, which I think Brian brought up much earlier, is communicating what you find acceptable and unacceptable behavior. I mean, this is just the start of, of uh, defining relations in space and, and coming up with common agreements of what is good and bad behavior. And so the United States, instead of holding um, all of its cards to its chest and classifying everything, 
not talking about things and waiting for public observers, hobbyists, to call out when a Russian satellite is stalking an NRO satellite, as we saw earlier this year, uh, is bad. I mean, if we can't define what we will accept or not accept, um, how are we supposed to have these foundational conversations for good behavior in space leading to arms control? I um, just wrote a piece on, on what a direct ascent ASAT ban could mean for strategic stability. So I really uh, recommend you go check it out if you're interested. It's on aerospace.csis.org. Um, but it, at the end of the day, when we, as, as Brian kind of brought up, and when we look at, and, and Dr. Farley is, we look at where arms control can start in space. You have to find the common ground and for space that's often orbital debris and sustainability of the environment because debris is indiscriminate. Um, no matter who created the debris or, or where it is, if you want to be active in that orbit, you are taking on that risk. And so um, cleaning up debris, mitigating the creation of new debris, possibly through um, test bans on debris creation of uh, weapons um, could be a, a great place to start. But I did want to loop in at the beginning of the question of um, military partnerships. And currently we have um, a, an amendment that really harms conversations between NASA and China, for example. Um, it's called the Wolf Amendment. It's not a complete ban on conversation, but it is uh, provides a significant hurdle. And so removing that so that we can establish an open dialogue, at least on the civil side, will hopefully help lead to better communication and understanding so that when we need to reach out on the military side, we have avenues and established pathways to do so. Um, but partnering with our allies is also incredibly important. Space is expensive and it's technically extremely difficult. And so sharing the burden of both expertise and cost and um, of working with our allies and partners who have um, great expertise in certain areas and leveraging that um, can be a great way to move forward instead of the U.S. military trying to do everything. Um, a great example of this is on the ISS right now with Canada. The Canada arm um, is an incredible piece of robotics that we have relied on for the lifetime of the ISS, and um, they have Canada has agreed to to help support the uh, the Artemis Accords, NASA's next uh, project going to back to the moon in similar ways. And so that kind of leverage, I think, of technology capability is helpful in the civil side of space, but could also be helpful uh, for military space. Okay, great. We only have about five minutes left. So I'm going to, uh, when y'all are replying to this last sort of question and a half, um, uh, if y'all could be quick about it. Uh, so from Ali Crawford, to follow up on what Caitlin said about, you know, U.S.-China cooperation, um, uh, they, they write, in order to begin capacity building and creating norms and space capabilities and use between great powers, to what extent will the U.S. and partners need to cooperate with China, for example, by allowing China access to the ISS for scientific study? And Brandon can take that question. And then 
The other sort of final question I wanted to ask, because several folks in the chat, including someone writing under the name of General Mark Naird, <laughs> thank you uh, for that, um, uh, ask about the issue of space debris that came up. And is this like an example of something that the Space Force should be concerned with, or does it, or is it something that uh, should be the responsibility of a civilian and not a military agency? Um, so that'll be our last question uh, before I give some concluding comments. Uh, yeah. So uh, on, on the China question, uh, so th this is the, this is the challenge, right? If you're going to create, you know, a space governance framework or norms of behavior, that means people need to buy into it. And if you don't have significant space actors that are buying into those, they might go off and create their own, which then creates, you know, competing uh, uh, norms or, or competing governance frameworks, fragmented and particularly if it's regulatory, and that just is not a great environment for anyone. Um, so I, I do think this is one of the big, big questions we have to tackle is how do we find a way to engage with Russia and China? And I use the word engage, not cooperate deliberately. I think cooperation is a bit beyond the pale at this point, um, given the broader geopolitical challenges, uh, particularly with, with China's behavior outside of the space domain, um, and the fact that we are going to be in a, a long-term competition with them. But I do think there needs to be a find a way to engage with them. Um, just quickly to mention what, what uh, pick up something that that, um, that Caitlin mentioned, the Artemis Accords. This is rather a new thing. So um, NASA has this program called the Artemis Program to return with human uh, space flight to the moon. Uh, as part of that, they have recently uh, announced the Artemis Accords, which is an agreement that countries participating in Artemis can well, sign that sort of outlines what they're going to contribute, like robotic arms or rovers or whatever, but also includes sort of a general set of space principles that they're signing up to. And, and this is a very interesting way for the US government to sort of, you know, push this is how we think we should interpret these existing broad international legal principles. Um, and they've now gotten eight other countries to come on board. And I think sort of continuing to expand that to include hopefully China, Russia, and other countries would be pretty great because that would mean that we're sort of seeing building that consensus around this is how we operate in space responsibly. This is, you know, how important it is to deal with all the debris and other and other issues. This is how we deal with some of the the really core questions around things like space resources, you know, ice, where I go, those sorts of things. So that's it. Thank you. Great. I can take the question on orbital debris and everyone should be worried about it if you're an actor in space. It, as I said earlier, it acts indiscriminately, um, but why the U.S. military should really focus on it is one, budget. Um, the U.S. military does have a significant budget and could probably afford to support this issue, or resolving this issue. Um, but two, because um, the U.S. Space Force operates the largest catalog of, uh, of space situational awareness data that tracks debris. And one of the biggest issues we see coming up in the near future is this: uh, the, the newest system will not only detect um, debris to the size of the softball, which is what we 
the smallest piece that we used to be able to see, now it'll be even smaller. So we're expecting an influx of data to sort through on debris um, specifically. And so it's a, it's a large problem for the military to sort out the data, but also we'll create hundreds of new, what we can call conjunction assessments or possibilities of collision between a satellite um, or pieces of debris um, in space that you know creates possibly more debris um, that affects uh, especially the the low earth orbit which is where all of these commercial companies are looking to proliferate their systems and, and really capitalize on um, these new technologies Um, I, I, I just uh, wanted to thank everybody for, for joining us here, and I, I wanted to close it a little bit in saying that um, one of the nice things about Space Force is that it reinforces that um, the institutions that we have, even at a place like the Department of Defense, really are plastic, right? They really are responsive to uh, people who are committed to changing them, who are committed to reforming them, um, and are who are committed to making new things, right? And so, you know, good or bad, uh, Space Force represents really big creative thinking. Um, and uh, we should tend to we should tend to really value and reward big creative thinking. All right, and with that, um, we are at uh, one thirty, so we're at the end of the event. I want to thank all of you uh, who tuned in, um, who tuned in for the event, and provided such a great flow of questions and comments for our for our speakers to address. I apologize if I wasn't able to get to yours specifically. Uh, there were quite a few coming in, which is great uh, to have such a motivated audience. Thank you also to Rob Farley, uh, Brian Whedon, and Caitlin Johnson for, for being our guest speakers today. And if you are interested in reading the policy analysis about the Space Force that Rob wrote um, that this event was based on, you can find a link to that further down on the events page, or if you uh, just search for Space Force on the Cato Institute website, it should be one of the first results. Um, the title of the uh, event is the same as the title of the policy analysis. So thank you all very much uh, for attending this Cato Virtual Policy Forum and stay healthy, stay safe.